In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow lovers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. I am delighted to introduce a new voice actor joining the No Sleep crew. Lindsay Russo is an award-winning LA-based actor, voiceover, and performance capture artist with over 20 years of theater, music, and improv experience. She's best known as the voice of Elita One in Transformers War for Cybertron on Netflix and for her extensive work in video games, including Deathloop, Fallout 76, and Elder Scrolls Online, to name a few. A bona fide geeky badass, as she puts it, she hosts the weekly geek talk show The Rollout on YouTube. She's also a U.S. Army Iraq War combat veteran and holds degrees from the University of California Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism and the College of William & Mary. We are so glad to have Lindsay joining our team. You'll hear her on this episode and much more from her in the weeks to come, he said with a wink, wink, hint, hint. Welcome to No Sleep, Lindsay. And now it's time to get romantic. I'll just dim the lights and slip into something more sensual. Forsyth Mercer, tape 08-A. Love, love, love. Do not speak to me of love. I have seen the horror that love can conjure up. The tragic deaths of the star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet. The blinders that fell upon the eyes of the tumultuous Macbeth, who was devoted to a woman of cruelty. The love for Desdemona that fested into jealousy caused by betrayal in the heart of Othello. And off the stage we have cinematic classics such as the political pairing of Bogart and Bergman in Casablanca. The doomed desire between the great ape, Kong, and the beauty, Anne Darrow. The ill-fated romance of Gosling and McAdams, both on and off the pages of the notebook. 
Or Optimus Prime and Elita One from Transformers, kept apart by a war that stretched for millennia against the evil Decepticon hordes. Curse you, Megatron! Why can't the robots just be free to live and love in peace? Why? <clears throat> anyway... As a former stage and screen actor, I was involved in a number of productions relating to the stories I just mentioned. So trust me when I say that I am an expert on matters of love. And now, in 2017, as many of you know, I work solely in documentary voiceovers. Nature documentaries, for the most part. And, good lord, if you want to see nature at her absolute reddest in tooth and claw, then you should see the love lives of animals. Oh, it makes even humankind's torturous, horrendous attempt at romance seem pleasant. So, no, to answer your question, I've never held a very high opinion of love. Fletcher's Castoria. I confess I don't know this one. What is it you want me to say? In our first tale... Ooh, how dramatic. In our first tale, we join a man attending a support group. Support for what, you ask? Well, for being cursed, of course. <laughs> I remember one time I thought I was cursed while working on the set of The Milky Mausoleum back in 1973. It was a... Oh, oh, it, oh yes, sorry. Sorry, apologies. <clears throat> in this tale, shared with us by author George Cotronis, this man's dire future starts to look a little brighter after he meets a new woman in said support group. Performing this tale are... Who? I don't recognize any of these kids. Oh, yes, I, I stay on topic. Yes, I know, I know. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Jessica McAvoy, and Mick Wingert. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Find it wherever you can, even with those in the same predicament as you. Together, you could listen to The Blackbird Lullaby. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 9. I'm lying in bed, alone. My arm extends over the side of the bed, wrist resting on the night table. I move my fingers, and I can feel the tendons in my arm pulling them like puppets on a string. My middle and last finger are stripped of flesh down to the second knuckle, leaving the bone visible. The blackbird makes two small jumps and comes closer, disturbed by my sudden movement. I stop moving, and it starts to peck at my flesh again. I watch it for a while. There's no pain. When I get bored, I shoo it away and it takes flight across the room to join its murder. His buddies are everywhere in the room, perched on furniture and lamps. They seem to be waiting for something. The bed is full of trash, pieces of fabric and twigs, plastic bottle caps and paper. 
The blackbirds have turned it into a nest. I get up and find myself bleeding from several different places on my body. They've been eating me in my sleep again. My clothes are stained with blood and full of holes. Most of the blood is old because I haven't changed in a week. All of my shirts have holes now. In the bathroom, I wrap my fingers with gauze, trying to make them look even as if there's still meat underneath the white cloth. I consider using some antiseptic, but don't see the point. I throw the bottle in the trash bin. I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. Gaunt. Tired. Broken. There are black circles around my eyes. My lips are dried and split. My face swollen and puffy. One of the blackbirds took out a small piece of flesh right under my eye. The blood runs down the side of my face like the streak of a red tear. I wash up and put on a clean shirt. I feel almost human again. I look at my watch. I'm going to be late. Out on the street, people avoid me. Little girls clutch their father's hands and try to hide their faces. They cry. I guess the clean clothes didn't help. Head down, hood up, I try to look more like a thug. A guy you shouldn't mess with instead of the monster that I really am. It seems to work better. In the subway, a blackbird finds its way to me. It watches from the seat across from me like it's the most normal thing in the world. No one seems to notice or care. Me? I'm used to it. I look down my nose at it and hold its stare. Not that it gives a shit. It hops down to the floor and comes closer. It picks at my shoelaces. I look at my face and the reflection in the window. I'm bleeding again. I feel no pain in my fingers or the myriad of small wounds I carry, but my head is killing me. I used to wonder how I can still be alive, but these days there's lots of things I don't think about. I just don't care. The extent to which I do not care would shock you. I get off at my stop and head for the old church up the hill. There was a fire a few years back and they never repaired the building, but it still is in decent condition. You just have to get creative about entering it. Around back, where the fence put up by the city has a human-sized hole in it, I enter the churchyard. One of the doors, the one closest to the fence, is unlocked. When it's not, the key is behind one of the loose bricks in the wall beside it. Inside, Meg and Jonathan are already waiting. Meg is a tall woman, thin, used to be pretty. She's wearing a summer dress that's two sizes larger than it should be. I suspect it used to fit her once. One of her nipples is showing, but she's too out of it to notice. Her dead eyes stare straight ahead. She doesn't see me. Jonathan is holding her hand. He turns his head to me when I come in, but then turns to her again. They met here two years ago. Meg is near the end now. Jonathan's still going strong. Two blackbirds fly in from the broken window and land on the rubble strewn about in the church. Most of the roof is gone, but the little corner we have set up here keeps dry even when it rains. Winters are tough. Then again, we rarely meet like this. Usually it's just desperate phone calls in the middle of the night and unexpected visits. A circle of pews stands in the middle of the trash and the junk. I take my seat across the couple and say nothing. Welcome to Damned Anonymous. Living with things that are killing you from the inside. Getting well. Not really, just dying. Together. Our little support group. When Meg first started growing tumors that got up and walked around in the night, she figured a support group for cancer survivors wasn't going to be that helpful. When Jonathan woke up to find himself chewing on his little daughter's arm, Alcoholics Anonymous just wasn't an option for him anymore. 
but they tried. And in those endless support group meetings, we found each other. Maybe it was the desperation that we saw in each other's eyes. The fear of something worse than death, which we recognized. Meg found me in a depression support group. I was saying I feel empty, numb, dead inside. After the meeting over stale coffee and even staler donuts, she came over and said, You're not really afraid you're going to kill yourself, are you? You're here for something else. Maybe she saw the birds perching on the windowsill. Maybe she noticed the bloodstains. So we started our own group. A few of us sometimes visit AA groups like that. We recruit the demonically possessed. Brennan walks in and takes me out of my little trip down memory lane. He's looking a bit better than last time. It probably means he fed again. One of those hookers downtown didn't wake up today, and right now she's floating in the river, face down in the water, bloated like a balloon. If she's lucky, some poor fisherman is going to snag her in his nets, and she'll get a burial. He looks ashamed, but in this little crowd no one gives a fuck if he ate some girl's heart and dumped her over the bridge. We are too involved in our own misery. I wave to him, and he sits down. The room slowly fills up with the rest of the monsters, and the stench gets progressively worse. The blackbirds have flooded the church, but they're quiet today. So I'm not going to get in trouble with Jennifer, our group leader. Jennifer has a mouthful of razor-sharp teeth, each filed to a point. When she cries, she cries blood. A Catholic, she tried to get an exorcism a year ago. It didn't work. I'm pretty sure she killed them, but she says she didn't. I think I read it in the papers, two priests missing around the same time. She looks like she's been crying. Today, there's a new girl. Short black dress, ripped in some places and dirty with what looks to be ashes. Heavy black makeup, her eyes unblinking and taking in everything at once. She's gorgeous, and deep within me I feel something slither, like Leviathan at the bottom of the ocean. Her name is Magdalene. There's a rat gnawing at her ankle. I think my heart has stopped. We go around the circle, telling our story for the umpteenth time, pouring salt on our wounds again to try to center ourselves, get in touch with the reality of our situation, understand and accept what we can't change. When it's Brennan's turn, he confirms my suspicions. I fed again. I couldn't help it. I was looking at my wife and thinking about eating her heart. I had to do something. He pauses and looks at the floor between his legs. Crocodile tears. <sighs> I drove downtown and picked up a streetwalker. Young thing, you know. I just picked up the first one that came to my car. I held it off until we reached the hills. And then I killed her. I ate her heart and buried her up there, in the woods. He's almost gone. He just doesn't know it yet. He's talking about the girl and crying, but I can see he's also salivating. I can see him smile when he says the word heart. He breaks down, sobbing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Jennifer consoles him with a hug while I roll my eyes. Fucking poser. Meg is too out of it to share today. Jonathan says he's okay, he's controlling the cravings. I'm trying not to fall asleep. I'm waiting to hear her story. 
I think I know what she's going to say, but I want to hear her voice. She will say, One day I saw them watching me on the street. I saw them again the very next day and the day after that. They watched me from the alleys and under cars and from the roofs of buildings. They followed me around. They came into my house. They watched me sleep. No matter what I did, they found a way in. They killed themselves in their attempts to come at me, and in the end, they always found me. There was no way to stop them. No poison or weapon would keep them away, so they became a part of me. They live with me. They are everywhere, always. I have no friends because the last time I went for a cup of coffee, the little freaks attacked the waiter, and I had to run out of the place with them after me. Always after me. They are eating me alive. Me, blackbirds. Her, rats. We have so much in common. After sharing, I walk up to her. Nice dress. She turns around and gives me the once-over. She seems unimpressed. Nice scabs. She smirks, but doesn't turn away. I smile. There's a rat trying to climb up your dress. She looks down and then catches herself. Made you look. (laughs) Funny. Do you want to go someplace? She motions with her head towards the two rats gnawing on the donuts on the table. I don't really go out in public, but you could come to my place. A blackbird lands on my shoulder, tries to pluck out my eye. I slap it and it flies away back up to the rafters. Where do you live? Parkside. Too far. Too many birds out there. How about my place? She agrees to come to my apartment tomorrow to see my record collection. She's into the Smiths, but who the fuck cares? We both know she doesn't give a shit about my records or anything else in my shitty apartment. Except me. She wants me. On the subway ride home, I almost feel human again. I'd celebrate, but I haven't eaten or had a drink in weeks. I go home and sleep on my bed made out of blood and black feathers. She's at my place exactly on time. I put on a relatively clean shirt. My skin itchy all over from the feathers and the bird shit that's been irritating it. I open the door. She's cute in her flower pattern dress, with little flesh wounds at the top of her breasts. A bit of her scalp is missing over her left ear, and she uses a flower to hide it. Hey. Hey. She walks into my apartment, which is covered in black feathers and dirt, birds taking flight with every step she takes. I feel like a teenager. A teenager slowly turning into something else, but still. Nervous. I drop the Smith's record on her lap. She pretends to be interested for a bit, but ultimately discards it on the coffee table. She pats the place beside her on the couch. And I obey. How are you doing with... them? Okay. I think I'm getting close. I nod. I felt the same lately. There will be a tipping point, and then... The transformation will be complete. Our demons will consume us. You? She picks a scab on her knee. It's cute. I shrug and decide to lie. Who knows? I don't think about it. I get up and bring out the wine and the glasses. She looks excited. We finish the bottle off in a half an hour flat, and when we're done with the boring chit-chat, we make out on the couch. Our wounds open and we bleed into each other. Feathers and coarse brown hair sticking to our bodies. It's painful and awkward, and sometimes I feel like I'll faint from the blood loss, but there are moments when I forget that my body is rotting and my heart is dead. 
and hell is waiting for me. We stumble to the bedroom and fuck in a drunken stupor, with the rats and the blackbirds watching. I wake up and I feel empty, hollow. I reach into my chest and I touch a blackbird nesting there. Its coat is slick with my blood, but it's not afraid. It feels safe inside of me. I feel safe too. She's still here, her arm resting on my chest. A rat is peeking out from under her dress. I wake her with a kiss and her little rat teeth gnaw at my lips. She draws blood and immediately I'm hard. I climb on top of her and then we are one. And the blackbirds and the rats are clawing and biting. And we flow into one another. And as monsters, we are reborn. Ever since time began, young people have followed rituals to prove that their beloved is the one for them. Paper craft, love calculators, magic spells. In my day, one would throw an egg at their beau's forehead, and if it didn't break, then they were your true love. And in this tale, shared with us by author Amanda Cecilia Lang, we discover a particularly terrifying teenage superstition, one that might have lifetime consequences. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight and Dan Zapula. So let's go and find out just how much Anna Lee and Adam are in love. Let's hear it straight from the lips of Shrieking Willow. The legend of Shrieking Willow was old when my grandparents were young. Gran says Willow was a girl like any girl who ever died from a broken heart. At night, she walks the mountains where she fell to her brutal end, searching for the moonlit lover who left her to die alone, and shrieking at young couples who dare to be in love. Sometimes she is the silver mist that blows through the forest where the trees grow crooked like spine-bent girls. Sometimes she appears as a gauzy, shadow-mouthed specter, high atop the cliffs beside the falls, or as a nude, fish-pale body shimmering on the surface of the water below. Some believe she was once a maiden of the native tribes, or the wayward daughter of colonial settlers, or even a nubile spirit of the Black Hills themselves. But no matter who tells her story, those lucky, happy couples who see Willow always agree on one thing. If she shrieks at you and yours, it means your love will last forever. I've waited my entire life to hear her scream. Adam turns onto a slow dirt road. The desolate scent of pine breezes through the windows, and filigree traces of moonlight glide across my blindfold. I don't know where he's taking me. And not just by the sweet, nervous way he lured me into the passenger seat or the inevitability of it all, it's the mountain's eerie roller coaster gravity. 
Not everyone feels it, but I always do. It sweeps over me long before the road runs out. Heavy granite sinks into my bones and my stomach floats on eddies of vertigo. Up is down, inside is out. Fantasy is reality. We're finally doing this. My senses buzz on overdrive by the time our tires crunch to a stop. Adam double-checks my blindfold, then guides me into the brisk open air. My feet are dizzy, my first steps tangle on loose rock. Careful now. He studies my hips and walks me forward. His hands tremble, and I wonder if it's from the possibility of ghosts or our first full night alone together. Have you guessed where we are? I hope so. The blindfold lifts. A rocky dead end. Darkness. Trees. I've never been here after sunset. Up ahead, hanging from a split rail fence, a lantern burns against the evergreen night. Beyond that, a long white shadow floats between the branches, caught wide-eyed in the lamp glow. Boo. A shiver of terror thrills through me. I clutch Adam's arm, then gasp with laughter. Gotcha. It's only cheesecloth hanging there, wavering in a slow breeze cut in the shape of a bedsheet ghost. You put that there? My racing heart swells up. He must have driven here earlier just to do it. He shrugs, so full of tiny gestures, they're second nature. Just setting the mood, in case the real thing has the night off. Impossible. I stare into the murky dark trees. She's out there, probably watching us right now. Don't you think? I think if anyone can make her jealous, it's us. He takes my hand, concealing his skepticism like a gentleman. But really, it doesn't matter what he believes. The legend of Willow is in my blood. My grandparents saw her when they were our age, and they're the happiest couple I know. It's my favorite bedtime story. Gran says Willow appeared on the cliff above their campsite, a smudge of white wind shrieking at them to beat the choir. That's how she knew Granddad was her one and only. Adam sweeps my curls behind my shoulders, and his grin turns ever serious. You're sure you're ready for this, Annalee? The lantern light carves his bookish features with fiery new angles. Usually he's so straight-laced, he stands before me defiant and daring and a little wild, a hero from my own gothic romance. The cheesecloth willow flutters behind him like sweet surrender, and I wonder what other surprises he has waiting. I glide my arms around his strong shoulders and kiss him until our heartbeats turn primal. Never been so ready. Me too. As he pulls our overnight packs from the truck, a nervous warmth blossoms inside my chest. We've whispered about this night since freshman year. All those candy-flavored kisses in the back row of the Rialto. All those study dates with the bedroom door closed. So many sweet, scary moments where we climbed the edge of almost... Up ahead, the split rail fence stretches in both directions, and there's a sign. Danger. Forgotten falls. No trespassing. The wind holds its breath in the forbidden land beyond, and moonlight pools in jagged spaces above the treetops, ethereal and swirling. Water crashes in the distance, calling to us. I take an unsteady step forward. You think we'll get in trouble? I think it's worth the risk. Adam pops the fence and offers his hand. For a guilty split second, the good girl inside me balks. My grandparents still think I'm spending the weekend marathoning rom-coms at my best friend's house, and I I was, until Adam appeared at her window, throwing pebbles and holding a blindfold out to me. I never lie to them. 
I always follow the rules, but it's the summer before college and this night is long overdue. Besides, I think Gran would understand. Adam and I exchange rebellious smiles, then I take his hand and cross over. Before we get started, he double-checks our gear and trades the electric lantern for a heavy-duty flashlight. The beam cuts a hole through the darkened forest, and he chuckles. <laughs> Sorry, not as romantic, but it gets tricky deeper in. We should watch our feet. There's no path, only the distant, watery murmur of the falls. Adam takes the lead, and I trust every step. Even at the peak of spontaneity, he always has a plan. His flashlight washes out the ponderosas and quaking aspens as we pass. The branches seem to reach for us bright and wraith-like. Although the rocky ground has only the slightest incline, my equilibrium tilts and my stomach floats in giddy knots. That upside-down gravity again. Whoa, you feel that? I steady myself against him. Getting dizzy out here. Yeah, it's spooky. He kisses my forehead. I think I'm love drunk. <laughs> you goof. I grab his hand and hold my arms out, walking an invisible tightrope. You know what I mean. This mountain is... off balance. Over the years, everyone from physicists to geologists to paranormal investigators have studied this area and its mysterious gut-bending qualities. They all have their pet theories. Optical illusions electromagnetism, even vortexes. Of course, Gran says it's Willow's forsaken heart that hangs heavy in the air here, wetting the stones and twisting the trees. As we weave between branches, I try to sense invisible eyes on us. Has Willow noticed Adam's strong silhouette? Does she see how he sweeps me up like wings in a fairy tale? It's not just his Eagle Scout confidence, it's his purity, his earnest chivalry. Every day with him is a waking adventure, every small moment the next best moment of my life. <laughs> Love drunk indeed. I yank Adam to a stop, silencing our footsteps, and turn an ear to the cool night, searching for a jealous murmur. What? Do you hear something? The night holds silent, fills with the pounding in my chest. I press his hand against the front of my jacket. Can you feel my heart? Always. Forever. He bows like a knight and I giggle, exactly the kind of romantic cheese that makes our friends roll their eyes. But I live for this. I'll never get enough. We continue on. Slowly the air turns heavy with the promise of wet earth. The tumbling thunder of the falls echoes around us louder and louder. We're close. Up ahead, Adam's light brushes the skeletal white arm of something crooked and abnormal. I gasp, delighted, and aim his hand in that direction. <sighs> One of her trees. The aspen stands bent at an extreme angle, and the top branches skew sideways, the sparse leaves twitching like fingers. I flutter my hand, teasing a wave. Why, hello, you sad, lonely thing. <laughs> Just wait. We pass dozens more, each tree bent and bowing into the landscape at random angles. Aspens, ponderosas, white spruce... I've seen these same trees in the daylight, of course, but that doesn't stop the goose flesh from prickling the length of my neck. Not axe cracked or staked down, they grow like this on their own. To me, they've always seemed like tragic, forgotten dolls leaning outwards, reaching for something that will never be theirs. Looking at them too long makes me feel as if I'm tumbling off the edge of the sky. This place is amazing in the dark. Feels like the entire forest is flo- 
Adam presses his finger against my lips. Look. He clicks the flashlight off. The shadows are immediate. My eyes strain against the extending, jagged darkness. Then I see it. Something glowing ahead. A pathway of lanterns. They flicker inside a misty silver gloom, leading the way like will-o'-the-wisps. Adam? I don't have to glance sideways to feel him grinning. I grab his hand, or does he grab mine? We race each other forward, passing lantern after lantern until we burst from the tree line into open air. My blood rushes like I'm falling, even with the meadow firmly underfoot and forgotten falls rising above us. The waterfall reflects the moonlight and pulls my attention to the high cliffs, to the place where the river seems to pour from the sky. I brace myself against Adam, but Willow isn't up there. No lovey-dovey, wispy white shadow glaring down at us from the edge, not even an afterimage of all my daydreams. Not yet. Adam whispers in my ear, reading my mind. Night is young. I turn and take it all in. We stand knee-deep in wild grass and pink fireweed. The meadow reaches all the way to the murky shore. Nearby, more lanterns illuminate a campsite with a stone fire pit and a two-person tent. It's perfect. You did all this? Well, not all this. He admires the view. The power of the water swirls through me. This is it. This is where they say she died. Beneath the falls, down where the jagged boulders ring the edge of the waterline like teeth in a jawbone. Willow and her lover used to swim right here. They'd run naked and dive from the cliffs, feel the gorgeous thrill of air and euphoria on their skin as they fell. No one knows if that long-ago girl stumbled or was pushed or simply leapt that final time. Only that a luckier fall would have landed her safely, deep in the reflecting pool. Come out, come out! Air feels playful but heavy. A ridiculously earnest part of me longs for this. Willow only unleashes her jealousy upon couples who outshine the love she lost. Her voice is the inverse of a curse. I believe in her like I believe in heaven and happily ever after. I I want her to be true. The full moon is bright enough to see by as we bring our little campsite to life. Adam ignites the kindling in the fire pit. Humming songs from old movies, I collect the electric lamps from the trees and arrange them around the meadow like set pieces in a dream. All the while, we trade soft kisses and keep our eyes on the cliffside. I catch myself smiling slyly, a little cruelly. Are you watching, Willow? Is your envy turning you green? By the time our campfire burns hot and crackling, the suspense has me ready to burst. I grab the flashlight. What are we waiting for? What do you mean? Let's climb to the top. I aim the beam at the craggy edges that ladder up the cliffside. I hear stories all the time about people climbing up there and living to tell about it. Looks easy. Don't you want to see what it's like where Willow fell? Annalee, no! Adam sounds genuinely horrified. Imagine the story we'd have. No way. I promised your granddad we wouldn't go up there. Well, that stops me. I swing the light his way. You what? He shields his eyes and his smile turns bashful. I... Might have asked your grandparents' permission to take you up here. Laughter, sweet, nerdy relief bubbles from me. (laughs) So much for a rebellious streak. You (laughs) asked for their blessing? Who do you think packed your sleeping bag? Your grandma called me an honorable young gentleman. Sounds like grandma, right? Sappy and perfectly romantic. She and granddad met in kindergarten, just like Adam and me. 
They started dating as freshmen in high school, just like Adam and me. They were accepted to the same university, just like Adam and me, and of course, they only have eyes for each other. Gran invites Adam to supper so often, I'm convinced she only wants to moon at us over the pot roast and reminisce about young love. And who can blame her? Young love rocks. Makes you feel daring and electric and wild. I return my light to the cliff and trace the water to the bottom. People do it all the time. Jump? The water's deep enough. It doesn't matter how deep it is if we break our necks climbing rocks in the dark. Adam squeezes my hand. Besides, I might know another way up there, but not until morning. You promise? Have I ever let you down? That's enough for me. As a backup adventure, we slip off our hiking boots and tiptoe to the shore. The rippling water around my ankle is an icy, exhilarating shock. I shiver. I can't stop smiling. A shapeless silver mist hangs over the water where the pool catches the falls. Even in the shallow end, the spray caresses my face. It should be deafening, but it sinks into the background as if I've always heard it. I marvel at the tranquility, the floating stillness. Is this the breath before the scream? Now what? Adam wraps his arms around me and scans the rocky cliffside. I don't know. I bite my lip. It's funny, actually. I always imagined us being here would be enough. The way Gran tells it, Willow just suddenly appeared. And started shrieking to beat the choir. He's heard Gran's story nearly as many times as I have. Your granddad thinks it was the wind howling down the cliffs. Granddad has no imagination. I stare out at the water, scanning the boulders for a smudge of ethereal white wind. Which rock do you think broke her back? Adam sucks in a breath. Christ, Annalee, that's grim. It's what they say happened. They also say her man watched from the shore, then left her to die. You really don't believe it? He darkens. I don't believe anyone could abandon someone they love like that. Maybe he didn't love her. Maybe he had someone better waiting at home, or he just got bored with her. I lean over and search my moonlit reflection, hoping to find Willow's sunken, fish-pale face staring back, pining and abandoned. It's only me there. Cherub cheeks, loose blonde curls. I look eerily beautiful. Where is that ghost? I glare at the cliffs, then whirl on Adam and embrace him like he just slayed his first dragon. I drag my damsel finger through his thick, windswept hair and exaggerate every slow, lusty kiss, putting on a show, brandishing him like a weapon. All's fair, right? By the time we stop, our skin is on fire. You see that? I shout into the sky, liking the way my voice cracks and echoes against the cliffside. He's all mine. <laughs> Be careful, a woman scorned. I brace for icy fingers to reach from the water and curl around my ankles, but after several minutes, my feet only turn numb. Willow's a no-show. Annalee, the campfire's getting low. A sudden shyness adds gravity to his voice, and I agree. It's time. We cross the meadow hand in hand. As we reach the campsite, a new kind of nervousness pulses through me, altogether achy and wonderful. After Adam tends the fire, we sit together and warm our feet with our shoulders wrapped in an oversized sleeping bag. We have a magical view of the falls, but all I see is Adam. Are you disappointed? Am I? Maybe. I was hoping we'd have a story to tell our grandkids one day, but I'm not here for a campfire tale.
I brush my lips against him, across his mouth, his jawline, his throat. He tastes like first kisses and dizzy mountain air. I don't need a ghost to tell me what I already know. I slide my hand down and undo his top button. He pulls back, holding me in a solemn, burning gaze. Are you sure? Feel my heartbeat. I press his open palm to my chest. My entire ribcage thunders like the falls. <laughs> I've never been so sure. By the light of the campfire, beneath the sky of stars, this moment is inevitable. A rustle of clothing, then we're bare and warm and trembling inside the sleeping bag. We've never done this before, but it feels like we've been waiting all our lives. A gentle sting, then sweet. I gasp and Adam goes very still, concern and firelight flickering across his face. I'm fine. I fall into the sweetness. He moves slowly, shyly, hungrily, kissing me deeper as I tighten my arms around him. I never want to let go. I close my eyes and let his body unlock me, let my spirit loosen from my flesh until I am his. Completely, wholly intertwined. I want to whimper. I want to cry out. I want to exhale our love and hear it echo. The mountain tilts with us until we're floating, tumbling deliciously. The wind stirs cool fingers in my hair. If I open my eyes while gravity is still spinning, I'm certain I'll catch something watching us from the trees. Spine bent and misty and reaching. I smile wickedly, and for a quick, icy heartbeat, I sense the piercing jealousy of a thousand shrieking ghosts. Then Adam whispers my name and I'm back with him and it's just the two of us. Always. Cool fingers snake across my shoulders and I wake to darkness. My exposed skin prickles, but it's not just the cold. I sense immediately that I'm alone. Adam? I sit up. My head feels loose, my mind swoons, the darkness fills my eyes. I press a hand to my temple and my fingertips brush a band of cotton. He blindfolded me? Slowly, I pull the cloth from my eyes. Darkness still. Where are the stars? My spirit feels turned around, disconnected. Unfelt wind rustles a thin nylon ceiling above my head. The tent? I wrap my arms across my naked chest. I remember Adam holding me inside the sleeping bag, my nude body tender and exhausted. We fall asleep next to the fire beneath the open sky. Sometime during the night, we must have crawled inside the tent, but I don't remember waking up. Adam? I say it louder this time, and my fingers curl against the blindfold. Why isn't he answering me? I grope around the gritty, empty floor for my clothing. My hand brushes the scattered lumps of my boots and a jacket. I pull them on quickly, then unzip the door. In the chilly open air, my exposed legs tremble and my body aches in delicate new ways. My footsteps sound unnatural, scraping and dull. I approach the cold ashes in the fire pit. It's not like Adam to let the fire burn out. Our sleeping bag sits nearby, a flattened, forgotten husk. I'm suddenly desperate for the light, but the lanterns I placed around the campsite are missing. This isn't funny, though I can't quite form the words. Something hollow starts happening inside me. Why would Adam do this? Why would he leave me alone, naked and blindfolded, after everything we just gave to each other? The meadow is slow-moving shadows. Wild grass sways like seaweed at the murkiest depths. 
The stars have gone impossibly black and the moon hides behind the smoky gray arm of a cloud. Without the lunar reflection, the falls disappear into the cliffside like a phantom lover slipping back into the night. My eyes slide to the top where they say a heartbroken girl fell to her doom. I don't want to look. There's no one up there. The emptiness is disorienting. It, it continues to gut me. Adam, please. I turn in a small circle, tightening my arms around myself. All color has abandoned the night. A soft breeze rattles the tent, creating the illusion of unseen hands groping for the exit. That's not Adam. I slink backward into the tall grass while gravity sucks at the meat in my chest. Where is he? The promise we made to each other is still raw upon me. I can still feel him. Adam? This time I scream it. My voice ricochets off the cliffs. Answer me! Nothing. A branch snaps beneath me, splitting the night. I turn to face the trees, and I see her in the light of a single lantern. Willow. I don't know how I missed her before. She must have been floating there this whole time. A white shadow against the murky evergreens. A string of sweat relief bleeds through me. It's Adam's cheesecloth ghost. The gauzy spirit ripples like a flag waving to me from the trees. In the dim, I can just make out another light deeper in the forest, and another beyond that. The message is clear. Follow me. Anywhere. I race to the tree line. The flashlight hangs beside the lantern. With a growing smile, I unhook it and aim the beam between the branches. Movement deeper in. A flash of Adam's naked chest blurs through my light. Is he crazy with the chill in the air? Of course, all I'm wearing is boots and a jacket. I don't waste another second. I chase after him, drunk on the memory of his touch and the tumbling gravity of the mountains. My quick breath echoes the crunching rhythm of his footsteps. I catch washed-out glimpses of him in my flashlight, pale shoulders and arms slipping behind a white spruce. Adam! My voice ricochets. I can't tell if he calls back. I can barely tell the sky from the ground. I reach the first lantern. It hangs from a crooked ponderosa. The malformed trunk bows at the waist, sinking deeper even as I watch. Check of the light, but the drifting sight of it slows me. A twig snaps. Adam again, almost twenty trees ahead. A bright flash of eyes and grinning teeth, I bolt after him. My flashlight dances jagged lines across the forest. I follow the path of lanterns, each one suspended from trees with glowing skeletal branches. My legs beat with upside-down adrenaline. The balmy oils of my earlier unease turn into exhilaration. But he's too fast, dashing through the trees ahead. Will you wait? The gap between us starts to shrink closer and closer until I pass the final lantern. Adam vanishes. I stop cold and sweep the forest with my light. Nothing moves ahead. The air is utter silence. I realize I've lost the sound of the falls. The woods can disorient fast, I know that, but I should still be able to hear the water. I turn around, head spinning. The force behind me is featureless, the lanterns have gone dark. Adam? The branch cracks immediately behind me, loud as thunder and intimately close. It could be the sound of my own spine snapping, it's so close. I lurch out of my flesh and pivot with my light. How did he sneak up so fast? You goof. But the words wither on my lips. The trees are bent. Every last one. The massive trunks bow away from me at brutal, aberrant angles. 
every treetop reaching, every branch stretching for a single distant point in the forest. Adam, there in the center of the treefall, holding a lantern, waiting for me. The only boy I've known all my life. The only boy I'll ever love. Oh, Adam, the trees. I stagger towards him, but something slithers around his waist. I stop cold. To my very marrow, I freeze. Hideous female hands stroke Adam's torso. Fingers like water-bloated worms crawl around his waist and his stomach. Muddy and slimy, they glide upward and fondle his naked chest. Adam tilts his head at me. His lips curve upward in slow, carnal pleasure as the rest of the creature appears like mist behind him. Her ethereal, malformed torso slumps sideways, boneless and waterlogged. Jagged knobs of spinal cord protrude from her ragged flesh, and her endlessly murky hair hangs like a midnight waterfall. Her arms cling tighter around Adam, hideously, horribly long, branches bound in bruised flesh. They snap and pop like twigs underfoot. She doesn't let go, and he doesn't struggle. He just stands there with that gruesome sideways smile. The thing that is Willow glares at me, and it's rage, not jealousy, that gathers in those empty, fish-eaten eyes. Her mouth unhinges and she sucks the wind into her wheezing, rib-punctured lungs, inhaling the misty gloom deeper and deeper, preparing to shriek. And it's strange. All those starry-eyed years listening to ghost stories, it never occurred to me to be afraid. For a weightless second, my vision doubles, my spirit tumbles, and I see myself from her angle. Me, a blood-drained husk with limp blonde curls and horrified moon eyes, rooted in place by the deity I once worshipped. I never should have tempted her. She caresses the top button of Adam's jeans. Get away from him! I stagger forward, but my vision tumbles again and I collapse over my own tangled feet, slamming to the ground with my lungs. I gasp, try to breathe, try to see past the sudden prickling darkness. My hands fumble across pine needles, groping, grasping for the flashlight. I find the handle and aim the beam forward. Nothing's there. Nobody's there. The trees are normal, tall, and upright. Pushing up onto my knees, I want to laugh, but can barely breathe. I press a hand against my pounding head. Was that even real? A legend-induced hallucination? The slimy hands caressing Adam's chest, his savage, euphoric grin, the after-images sear into my vision. Shuddering to my feet, I try to blink them away. Anna Lee! Adam's voice echoes from impossibly far away, sending a flock of sleeping birds full feather into the sky. I'm here! I pivot towards the sound with a sob of manic relief. I, I can't believe it. The lanterns are still there. They line the woods, showing the way back to him. I can hear the falls again. My knees wobble liquid bones, but I rush towards the lights and the sound of Adam calling. When I break through the trees, he's there waiting. He tilts his head, taking me in, scratched legs and pale, lingering horror. He holds a hand out to me. Told you I knew another way to the top. As he says it, the mountain flips upside down. My stomach plunges and I stagger backward with a gasp. The falls are magnificent and nearby, but we're not at the bottom any longer. We're standing on the cliff high above the meadow in the place where the river leaves the sky. Two final lanterns mark the edge, lights on a runway. It's the second most amazing thing I've seen all night. Adam, she's out there. I, I saw, I... I almost tell him everything. 
how Willow broke the trees, how she was horrible and muddy and had her hands all over him and the insidiously enthusiastic way he led her. But the story withers on my lips. I breathe it back in. That wasn't Adam. Whatever hideous illusion that was back there between the trees, it won't be part of our legend. What's real is right in front of me, standing tall and cherished on the edge. Flesh and blood and the other half of my soul. We haven't been this close since we fell asleep, skin to skin beside the campfire. We lock eyes and an ambrosial shyness overtakes me. We're different now, yet still the same. My body burns with sweet, raw memories. And as I approach him, my blood beats for our next adventure. We walk between the lanterns and peer down the welcoming arm of the river. We contemplate the drop into the moonlit pool below. It's going to be deep and cold. But this is Adam, after all. Even at the height of spontaneity, he has a plan. What do you think, Annalie? His words whisper chills through me. I can't believe we're standing here, even as I know it's inevitable. Are you ready? I take his hand. Where does he take mine? We back away from the edge, giving ourselves a running start. Hand in hand, we rush and fly and soar over the side. Gravity returns and yanks us straight down. Falling, plummeting, loving. It all happens in a slow-motion heartbeat. The air rushes past us, lifting my hair, and I hear my voice on the wind and I see the meadow and our campsite below. The campfire still burns. The lamps still dot the tall grass. And Adam's strong form is still there in the sleeping bag. Even as I feel his hand tighten around mine, slimy and wormy and cold. I jerk sideways, but there's no time to scream. A bloated, muddy creature with whipping dark hair plummets beside me. She yanks me close, embraces me from behind. Her gangly, fish-pale arms squeeze my waist and we break against the rock. Our spine split with the crack of a thousand trees. I crush her and she slams through me as my spirit tears loose from my fibers. In the dizzy, black seconds that follow, my body slides limply off the rock. Blood and spirit, I seep into the water, dying as Willow once died. My tragedy will twist the trees. With the last of myself, I turn my head towards the shore. I try to call for Adam, but my voice chokes on sorrow and mist. And yet someone shouts his name. Someone does. Adam! Floating beneath the falls, I hear my voice echo against the cliffside. A heartbeat later, Adam's flashlight zigzags across my face and he splashes through the water. Annalie, are you insane? Did you jump? He wades closer and there is raw terror in his voice and... Why not? I can feel the split-branch nightmare of my spine protruding from my back. But Adam's expression softens. His sudden relief disorients me. You're okay. Just breathe. I'm here. You knock the air from yourself. That's all. My God, what were you thinking jumping alone like that? He guides me upright and walks me from the water, wet, glistening legs and sagging blonde curls only. Only the mountain is upside down and misty, and I witness all this from outside myself. My body walks with Adam, possessed, lovely, upright, even as my spirit bobs here on the water. No, 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 no. I twist and writhe until my feet sink into the muddy shallows. As I attempt to stand upright, my torso slumps sideways and my arms stretch outward like the branches. I reach for Adam. He leads the girl that is not me from the shore and into the firelight. 
His voice is lush with concern as he drapes her in a sleeping bag. Are you sure you're okay, Annalie? She smiles wickedly and presses his hand against her nude chest. Feel my heartbeat. As he leans in to kiss her, I reach and reach but cannot touch him. My mouth unhinges and the wind rushes from me, a gale force of hollow despair. I shriek. And far, far away, Adam breaks their kiss just long enough to gasp. Shh. Did you hear that? Yes, partners can be mischievous and fun, there's no denying that. When the man or woman that you love sets up a devious and exciting surprise for you, like a puzzle to figure out or a treasure to seek, or, as is the case in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, a scavenger hunt to solve. But sometimes even the most welcome of surprises have an unwelcome ending. Performing this tale is Matthew Bradford. So let's hunt high and hunt low and try to answer the question as to why there is a pile of purple flowers on my doorstep. I found two things on my doorstep this morning. A pile of purple flowers and Tommy's eviscerated remains. At first, I could explain neither. But after the shock wore off and I looked back on yesterday's events, I think I understand what happened to Tommy. It was our anniversary and I'd forgotten, as usual, he woke me up with breakfast in bed and a mysterious red envelope. It was a clue for some sort of scavenger hunt across town to all the places where we'd had our firsts. You know, first date, first kiss, first time I'd drunkenly puked on his shoes, first time we held hands. The usual sappy stuff. I fucking hate scavenger hunts, but I played along because it made him happy, and because I felt guilty for not getting him anything. So... We have nasty raccoons in our backyard. I used to wake up to our garbage cans overturned and trash-strewn all over the goddamn lawn. And I, I tried everything, including buying those tight rubber handle things that are supposedly raccoon-proof. But they were clearly not made by anyone who'd ever met a raccoon, because those suckers basically have opposable thumbs and claws and fangs. If the rubber didn't get chewed through, the end of it would get torn and we'd find claw marks all over the garbage lid. I know we're not supposed to do this because it encourages the animals or whatever, but I took to leaving food out for them so they wouldn't be as tempted to get into the trash. And it worked really well. It's like we had an agreement. We both held up our ends of the bargain. I leave food out for you on the porch. You leave my trash alone. Yesterday, I was scrambling. 
Every moment Tommy's eyes weren't trying to lock onto mine, I'd be on my phone desperately looking for a proper anniversary gift. Socks wouldn't cut it this year, not after he'd planned such a big thing for me. Ties were out of the question, he didn't wear those, and fishing gear? No, Tommy was terrified of fish. Like, I don't know how you can be afraid of fish. It's not like they can come out on land and eat you, but whatever. My point is, my usual autopilot programming was disrupted, and I forgot to fulfill my end of the bargain with the raccoons. Tommy dragged me out and drove us to the first location on the rudimentary map, the spot where we first laid eyes on one another. Well, sort of. See, we met on a dating app, so he took me to our local internet service provider's HQ where a box of chocolates was waiting for me dangling from the branches of a tree. Then it was onto milkshakes at McKenzie's where I vaguely remember being awkward as fuck as we complained about our jobs on our first date. Tommy recounted it better than I remembered, and after that we went to the promenade where we went on our first walk as a couple. He left little notes hidden in nooks and crannies telling me how much he loved me. A few had gone missing, and we searched for them longer than we should have. I kind of like the thought of some random stranger finding a rolled up piece of paper wrapped in pink twine, opening it up and reading, I love you more than the stars in the sky, and getting a boost of serotonin or, alternatively, being hugely weirded out by it. My breaking point, and the point where I started heavily drinking, was when he whipped out his guitar and started singing me an original song. In public. I mean, listen, I love this man. I sincerely do, but I was mortified. I couldn't help but thinking, please never, ever do anything like this again. The song wasn't the problem. It was lovely. He has a great singing voice. It was the whole publicness of it. Like when servers at restaurants line up and clap and sing happy birthday. Thankfully, our last stop was the bar where we both got well and truly sloshed. We took a cab home, and as we wobbled up the front steps, Tommy mumbled something about forgetting his guitar in the car. I pressed on ahead while he circled back towards the driveway, evidently forgetting that the car was parked halfway across town. I was just past the threshold when I heard Tommy scream. I turned my head and and saw him land face first into the gravel driveway, and my reaction was laughter. This handsome drunk asshole had fallen over himself, I thought. I was too far gone to fully register the long, dark, clawed fingers wrapped around his ankles. I sloppily closed the door and started to undress. Tommy was still screaming. He hadn't come inside yet. I kind of blacked in and out. I don't know if it was the booze or the stress or fear, but thinking about it now, I see the scene in pieces, yet somehow feel the horror in full. It's it's like a movie with missing footage where the sound doesn't stop. I tense and I hold my breath, and even though I barely saw anything, I somehow both know and don't know what happened. I remember looking out the window and seeing a mass of bristled fur standing over Tommy. I remember blood and screams of agony. I remember a ripping sound. I remember shakily typing 9-1 into my phone, then seeing a pair of reflective eyes leering back at me before I dropped the phone. I remember an inhuman shriek like a hyena yowling through the blades of a fan. And then it was morning and I was sprawled out on the floor, covered in puke. 
I clean myself up, ignoring the window and avoiding the door. I called to Tommy, even though something at the pit of my stomach told me he wouldn't reply. I could hear the faint echoes of cries for help scratching at the back of my mind. Coffee. Shower. More coffee. The front door was somehow always in the corner of my eye, no matter where I stood in the house. It begged to be opened. My fragmented mind wanted me not to. Every time I dared to approach, I felt myself teetering on the verge of a panic attack. Don't do it, that little voice inside my head said. You're not ready. I tried to convince myself I was only afraid of the sunlight worsening my hangover. Some things are hard to accept. Other things you accept immediately, but you need time to process. I'm not sure which category I fell under. I did open the door eventually. I opened it, saw Tommy, and fell to my knees sobbing. He'd been torn open at the abdomen. His chest was so flat, everything inside was gone. It was less bloody than you'd think, probably because the blood had been lapped up. My hands were shaking as I reached for him, but I was too afraid to touch his body, for my skin's last memory of his to be a clammy, cold sensation, rather than the soft, warm touch of his hand in mine in the back of the taxi. And you know the sick, demented thought I had as I kneeled there in shock? The thought that makes me feel like an absolute monster. The way his stomach was torn open, and pieces of him were strewn about the ground, it reminded me of a torn garbage bag and all the leftovers discarded by the raccoons. The fucking raccoons that I forgot to feed. The raccoons I'd never actually seen, but had always just assumed that's what they were. My eyes fell on the neat pile of flowers at the top of the stairs. I still don't know what they mean. Are they a gift? An apology? Payment? Maybe I'll never know. Is that it? I still don't understand the purpose of these exercises. I have a vast and storied filmography ready and available. I'm unclear why these presentation intros are required. They have nothing to do with the contract, right? There's no connection to Gold Meadow here. Nothing about the disappearances. Right, right, I suppose you know best. It's just strange is all. We leave for Gold Meadow tomorrow, and I'm not even packed. I'll have all the time in the world to do this when I get back. You know, I love craft fairs. All those bespoke wooden sculptures, handmade clothes, delicious confectionery, and more unique toys and games that you can shake a stick at. And they're the perfect place to go on a quiet date with your partner, too. Although some would disagree, like Seth in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Towes. Performing this tale are David Alt 
Andy Cresswell, Penny Scott Andrews, Erica Sanderson, and Lindsay Russo. So try to have a good time. Keep an eye out for a nice item that will suit you and your loved one. Maybe you could enjoy this item together, even if it goes against the advice of the Candle Maker. Keep walking, Jody. Head down and don't make eye contact. They're tantalizingly close to the relative safety of the food section, the sickly but oh-so-sweet smell of fried food cutting across the waft of scented candles. Jodie's pace slows. She alters direction. She's gone, lost in a haze of colors, ribbons and mood cards. But I'm hungry... Seth eyes a young boy through the gates, one hand locked to his mother's and the other around a hot dog that is losing the battle against gravity. Are they all homemade? The lady at the table is wearing a black veil and has been watching them for some time. Of course they are, darling. Fuck's sake. Seth drops his shoulders and follows, four paper bags already full of handmade crap and randomness rustling against his legs. With a mixture of pride and foreboding, he watches his wife smile her smile, the one that indicates she's found yet another kindred spirit, a sparkle in her eye. I love your veil. Thanks. Let me guess, homemade? She nods and flashes a wink. It's so pretty. Why buy bulk when you can have something so incredibly unique? Because it's a quarter of the bloody price. Seth thinks to himself. You've got so many candles already, though, Jokes. If the house ever caught fire, our street will become a lake of wax, a perfumed catastrophe. I mean, no offence to you. Patricia. The veiled lady follows up with a wry smile and offers her hand. Automatically, he reaches for it. Seth. What's your favourite smell, Seth? The one that takes you away? Or the one that brings you peace? Food. There's just no room. I opened the cupboard in the hallway yesterday and I had to chase some of the buggers down. If you both know about an upcoming apocalypse, please let me know, so at least I can ring my mother. They make me happy, Seth. You like your food, wine, and I like my... things. I know you do, Jody, and that's great, but don't you think we have enough... things? The candles all smell the bloody... Seth! Jodie's face is turning a shade of red, and Seth's not sure if it's anger or embarrassment, but either way, he knows it's time to bail. You two are adorable. And oddly enough, Patricia means it. 
They remind her of a time before loneliness, the comfort of being in a relationship with no airs or graces. She has developed an eye for such things. The man looks at his wife in the same way George used to look at her, with a resigned submission to love. And how they were behaving before, the playful nudges, the inhibition to share their affection in public, she lets herself believe they could be the ones. He likes travelling, hiking, you know, the smell of the forest. I was fitter a couple of years ago. Seth unconsciously sucks his stomach in. Work means I don't get many vacation days these days. And as Jody said, I'm running on heavy fuel at the moment. <laughs> My late husband loved the forest too. Said it took him away from all the bustle. Made him feel like a child again, all play and imagination. You remind me of him, Seth. He's almost falling for it. She's drawing him in with practiced patter and he can feel his defenses dropping. And I agree with you. A lot of candles do blend into the same noxious explosion of perfume. Let me assure you, though, that these are very different. She reaches underneath the table and pulls out a coarsely cut piece of card with Patricia's candles scrawled above a dull orange flame. There's no email address or social media tags, just a landline number. If you're ever dissatisfied. As Seth takes the card, Jodie's already on her fourth candle, closing her eyes and inhaling the magic. Oh, this one's lovely. Tropical sunset. Smell this one, Seth. Where's the forest one, then? He knows the battle is lost. Too many words exchanged now to run. Patience, Seth. What about you, Jody? Where do you like to go? Jody looks across to Seth, eyes already glistening. She likes anything that reminds her of her mother. The veiled lady nods as though this is secondary information. Hmm. She's no longer with us. She does not phrase it as a question. Lifting the hem of the tablecloth, she reaches under and brings out a small, ornately carved box. The catch gives a satisfying snap as Patricia pulls back the lid and brings out the second and fifth candle from the selection. I like you both a lot. And I think you'll like these. Unlike the rest, they're both one of a kind, not made in batches like the others. They're made with even more care, love, and an extra special bit of magic. The word sets Seth's tolerance waning again, as if on cue his stomach churns, reminding him he's being hustled without the comfort of any snacks. He reaches for the green candle, but Patricia snaps it back. Close your eyes. He contemplates arguing the case, but figures it will only delay things. He does as the veiled lady commands. Breathe in. And with a sniff, 
He's there. Babbling stream in the distance, fern giving to the warm breeze, and undergrowth crackling beneath his feet. All thoughts of greasy food fade quickly, making room for the earthy smell of life and death, vegetation, moisture soil, decaying plants. His legs buckle, forcing him to open his eyes and reach out for the edge of the table. Holy... You're not funny. He opens his mouth to speak, but Patricia beats him to it. I'll bag that one up for you. She holds the black candle towards Jody. Jody goes in, eyes closed, a strange and garbled moaning leaving her lips. Seth watches his wife begin to sway from side to side, feeling all warm and tingly as her smile develops. He's always loved her smile, but unlike the one that has naturally moulded over time, the one spreading across her face breaks the boundaries of adulthood, unrehearsed, spontaneous, and full of hope. It reminds him of the smile she gave when he proposed. Bringing her in close, He wipes the fresh tear away and kisses her on the forehead. I was in Mother's house. Her eyes are now open, wide and untamed. I saw her, Seth. I saw Mum. Scent can conjure so many things. Our people underestimate it. Look on it as a secondary sense, but it's the one that can conjure vivid memories. Joy, sadness, and hope. It's what brought me here in front of you. Jody feels exhausted all of a sudden. You're very talented. Patricia smiles and puts her hands behind her back. Wait until you light them. How much? Jesus, Seth, way to ruin the mood. Adorable. Patricia dismisses the sight of his wallet with her hand. As I said before, I like you both. It's like going back in time. Let's call it a late wedding present, eh? You sure? Just knowing they're going to a good home is enough for me. She bows her head slightly and raises an eyebrow. I do hope they don't just get shoved into a cupboard, though. Jody reaches across the table and embraces Patricia as though she's an old friend. We promise they won't. She wants to know more. She wants to know how the lady made the candles, what happened to her late husband, and how she could even have one not looking a day over 30. She wants to share a coffee with her, perhaps a glass of wine, bask in their love of craft and all things homemade. Her friendship group is solid, but they often mock her fetish for such things. One last thing. Will you honour me with a promise? At this point, Jodie would promise her life savings in exchange for another brief encounter with her mum. Of course. Will you light both candles at the same time? 
I know it's an odd request, but but I love the thought of you enjoying them at the same time. We can do that. Should we be in the same room? No. If the smells mix, it won't have the same effect. Of course. Well, it's been a strangely awesome encounter. Seth offers his hand as his stomach gives another gurgle. He means it, though. What he thought would be just another awkward standoff of rattling bags and wishing Jodie away from another crazy, it turned out to be a rather pleasant experience. Truth be told, he's looking forward to settling down in his favourite armchair with a tumbler in hand and his new gateway to the forest. Thanks so much. I hope you sell thousands. Just one might be enough. Patricia waits for them to turn and uses her veil to dab at the fresh tears, hoping that one will indeed be enough. She didn't think it would be so difficult. She knew love once, real, selfless, all-consuming, thought she could spot it a mile away, but appearances have proven deceptive. Real love, the genuine die-for-you kind, it seems, is rare. This could be her last shot, all those torturous and solitary years. For what? The candle's flame flickers as Seth places the peppermint tea on the edge of the bath. Are you sure you don't want me to scrub your back? I'm sure. Oh, shoot. Can you take that tea back down with you? You only just asked for it. Jody smiles. I know. Sorry, but it's such a strong smell and... Oh, yeah, of course. Fine. Mustn't let the smells mix. Are we supposed to do a countdown or what? <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. She tentatively dips her toe in the thin layer of foam. We can if you want. That looks so nice. He watches her slide into the bath. Are you sure you don't want company? As sure as shit. She only started using the term after her mum, Vanessa, died. It was one of many sayings she adopted since her passing, a long and arduous battle with cancer. One of a kind, a force to be reckoned with apparently, but one that he never got the chance to meet. That said, it still feels like he lost a family member. As far as he was concerned, anyone that Jody nurtured so much love for was an opportunity stolen away. He picks up the tea and winks. Okay. See you on the other side, I guess. Thanks for a lovely day. And thanks for letting me indulge my crafty side. Nothing but crafty. He descends the stairs quicker than he usually would, hot tea spilling across his fingers. He places the cup on the kitchen counter, empties some ice from the freezer into a heavy tumbler, and whistles his way into the living room. Bourbon time. He opens the cabinet, rubs his hands together with anticipation, a habit picked up from his father, and fills the glass half full. He can even hear his father's voice in his head as the ice begins to gently crackle. 
Day done, places been, people seen. Now time to relax with a glass of Jack's. At this point, Seth would usually throw a vinyl on and dance his happy alcohol dance. But secretly, he's been getting excited for this moment. Hairs bristling on the back of his neck, feeling slightly silly about the unmistakable adrenaline prompting an elevated heartbeat, he grabs the lighter near the small cigar box. Momentarily, he considers lighting one up, but recalls the lady's, Patricia's, advice about mixing scents. Settling into his armchair, he sips back a generous gulp of gold and flicks a flame, applying it to the wick. Knocking back the rest in the glass, he kicks off his shoes and closes his eyes, waiting for the forest to come. There's a ton of admin stuff to get through at work tomorrow, but Jodie scolds herself for thinking about it. Work takes more than its fair share without having to steal extra. She lets her head fall back, expecting to feel the tickle of foam, but recalling the lackluster effort of the scentless soap. She closes her eyes, already feeling the intoxicating heaviness. Her mum was always fastidious when it came to appearances, even more so when Dad left for someone half her age. The house is old, crumbling brickwork and scars from where Clematis used to grow, but it's still pretty. The entire scene is so impossibly vivid. As soon as she opens the front door, a cocktail of smells draws her further in, the musky sweetness of the hallway. The smell of baking from the kitchen mixing in with the perfume that her mum used to wear, the one that always reminded her of candy. She can see the open kitchen window all the way down the hallway, two pies resting on the sill, creating a film of steam, just a normal Sunday evening from eons ago. Mum? Excitement and unease run through her as she prepares to step across the threshold. She looks behind and to her sides, but the rest of the world is just a blur, not part of the story, not part of the experience. The scents are getting stronger, though, taking hold and putting her fears to bed. Unable to resist any longer, she steps into the hallway, her dress wafting behind her as the breeze travels down the corridor, slamming the front door shut and causing her to jolt. Steam immediately begins to pour through to the hallway, stretching towards the ceiling. Her mum's voice scolds from the kitchen. What did I tell you about leaving that door open? Sorry, mum. Not to worry. I made two blueberry, one blackberry, and the cherries still in the oven. She had just eaten a healthy serving of Seth's apple curry, but Jodie's stomach lets out a deceiving growl. Nothing beats mum's pies, made with love. It's surreal, disorienting, each grain in the wooden floor, the texture of the wallpaper, the click from the old-fashioned phone as she spins the dial with her finger. The scene is playing out as vivid as some dreams, yet it offers so much more. It's the smell. She wafts her hand, sending a wisp of grey smoke spiralling, 
but more replaces it. She can no longer see into the kitchen now, her vision distorted by the ever-thickening film. She edges forward, observing her reflection in the condensation of the hallway mirror, surprised not to see a younger version of herself, one that took everything for granted. I miss you, Mum. The dress she wears was her mum's favourite. It should be far too small for her these days, but the image shows impossible perfection. Cold to touch, she runs a finger across the glass, writing the same message she did for months after her mum died. Are you there, mum? There's a cough from the kitchen, weak and filled with agony. I'm coming, mum! The explosion drops her to her knees, shards of glass spraying against the wall and floor with deafening impact. She curls into a ball, body violently trembling. Skin grazes against the fragments in her hair as she puts her hands to her ears to block out the sound, but it feels like the glass is trapped in her head, scraping against her brain. She tries to make herself even smaller, grimacing as her spine makes its protest. She remains in position, waiting for the shard to her right to stop spinning and fall to its side. Silence. The bitter taste of blood layers at the back of her throat, and the stinging begins to ramp up quickly. Putting a hand to the side of her face, she inhales sharply as her fingers run across the segment of glass lodged in her cheek. With her tongue, she finds the other end, prompting a liquidy gurgle. She surveys the rest of the damage and finds fragments of glass embedded in her skin, streams of bright red running down the sleeve of her dress and creating the only colour in the now very grey hallway. Finally, the ringing in her ears begins to subside, and slowly, she begins to stand, pulling pieces of glass from her arm and brushing herself down. She leans in towards the mirror, futilely waving at the smog. On the piece of glass that remains in its centre, impossibly supported, the word no is written underneath the question that she could have written with her eyes closed. Her breathing feels far too noisy. Saliva rattles in her mouth, but she's too afraid to swallow. A creak of a floorboard snaps her head to the right. The glass that littered the floor around her is gone, as is the searing pain in her jaw. Another creak prompts her to hold her breath and freeze. There's a scratching sound, as though someone is dragging something along the walls. I know it isn't you! She takes a step back, blindly reaching her hands into the fog, noting the now untarnished mirror and her smoky full-length reflection. The word no still plain as day, though. She begins to panic, reaching to her left, praying for the handle of the door. Another creak. She tries to scream, but nothing comes out. Frustration, rather than curiosity, forces Seth from the chair. The scratching sound is infrequent and gentle, but enough to be irritating and demand his attention. He can smell the forest, but it's faint, as if carrying on his clothes from a previous camping trip, 
Nothing like the experience from the lady's stall, where a mere sniff conjured a majestic canopy. As he ambles towards the source, his legs feel heavy, his brain cloudy. Perhaps sleep would have stolen the experience anyway. He can try again tomorrow. He freezes, shoulders dropping and mouth falling slightly ajar. He lets out a grunt. Arching his neck to see if the imagery holds from a different angle, he takes a small step forward. Window fogging as he draws in, he begins to inspect the jungle that has taken the place of his manicured front lawn. Darkness only allows him clarity of the first few layers of vegetation, but shadows moving on shadows suggest the denseness extends well beyond where his petunias used to be. Jody? Jody? It's stronger now, the smell. Through the gaps in the window that Jody always moans about in winter, the bitter earthiness begins to fill his nostrils with nostalgic wonder. Fuck me. Fuck me. Edging towards the hallway and the front door, expecting the foliage to disappear at any moment, he coils his fingers around the handle while not taking his eyes from the window. The thick vegetation continues its dance, brushing against the house with a quickening tempo. Afraid to open the door in case the illusion fades, he remains in position, skin crawling with excitement. Three, two, one. So many smells begin to seep through as he pulls the handle, the warm breeze even leaking some dead leaves onto the carpet and causing his shirt tails to flap. It all feels so damned real. He breathes in the spiciness, savouring the thickness at the back of his throat. It often reminds him of the greenhouse from the old house, which his dad never used to let him play in, but the one he sneaked into anyway. It's been too long. He knows he ought to call. The wind blows through again, a stronger gust this time that blows more forest debris into the house, Full of childlike awe, he steps outside onto damp leaves and closes the door behind him. A fucking candle, for God's sake. But here he is, standing in an impossible rainforest, only a few feet away from his whiskey. He reaches out, caressing the soft ferns with his fingers. How is it possible for a single sense to evoke the others in such a powerful way? The thought fades as he lets the sight, sense and feel of the forest seduce him. He's captivated, breathing in nature's sweet perfume in his good place where magic lives. All the crap Jody has brought home has finally been worth it. He wants to show her to go back and get her, but knows it's not possible. This is a solo experience, and no doubt she is in her own personal heaven, basking in the nostalgia and smells that make her weak at the knees. Almost stumbling as the wind rushes through, this time with even more ferocity, he stretches out his arms and begins to laugh harder than he has for some time, raw and explosively, until it finally becomes a tear-inducing rasp. 
<laughs> oh, this is insane! <laughs> his breathing slows, and he begins to wipe the moisture away with the back of his shirt sleeve. Oh, totally fucking insane! <laughs> Between flashes of foliage, he spots something ahead. At least he thinks he does. His vision is cloudy and obscured, but he's sure he can make out the shape of a cross. He takes another step forward, squinting into the darkness, but the wind drops quickly and the wall of green is back. Taking off his socks for further immersion, he moves forward, sliding aside the moist vegetation and enjoying the feel of nature beneath his toes. A few steps in, he glances back to make sure he can still see the house. This prompts another laughing fit, albeit shorter and slightly more self-aware. The experience is absurdly terrific, even beating those mushrooms from college, he thinks. He wonders if something special might go into the wax. What other explanation is there? With more confidence, he strides forward, still giggling as he pulls back vines and swats at mosquitoes that have started to appear. The guffaws stop as he steps into the small clearing and sees a man nailed to a makeshift cross, eyes removed and intestines spilling from his abdomen. Two names have been etched on the man's right arm on either side of the blood-encrusted heart-shaped wound. Seth and Jody. The smell of death layers at the back of his throat. And just like that, the forest changes. Dread replaces awe and wonder, and the forest seems to grow that little bit darker and meaner. Seth's breathing becomes quick and erratic as he shrinks back into the relative safety of the foliage. Eyes darting left to right as he tracks every moment, he bites at his lip as a wave of nausea doubles him over. He fights it, trying to rid the vision from his mind. With each step back, the vegetation feels sharper and the ground softer. Jody! Jody! His heel catches against something, and he looks down to find a grey bone emerging from the soil. To his right, he spots another and another. He turns and runs, wincing as the forest tears into his legs, arms and face. Beneath him, the ground grows increasingly marshier, his feet slopping against dampness and exhausting him far too quickly. He should be back by now. Where's the house? Where's the fucking house? He panics, running ahead, grimacing and brushing away the vegetation that he longed for only minutes ago. Fuck! Another clearing. Another makeshift cross. Another man with most of his insides missing the same sinister declaration of love carved into his arm. The vomit explodes from Seth, landing inches before the cross and next to something that once belonged inside the man's chest. He takes off again, his feet squelching into the boggy ground that feels like it wants to swallow him. 
Which way? Which fucking way? The explosion crackles across the forest, stopping him dead in his tracks. A gunshot. A gunshot. Holding his breath, with blood pounding in his ears, he remains perfectly still. He waits. Nothing. Impatience and fear win over, and more cautiously, he's on the move again, ducking and swerving as much as possible to avoid the claws of the jungle. Ahead, foliage gives to the wind, revealing the outline of another cross and another lolloping head. I want to go home now. I want to go home. He whispers, as though the chant is the secret to being back in his comfy chair and sipping his whiskey. He hears something, a rustling from the left. Not a breath of wind, though. He sprints in the opposite direction, pumping his arms and legs in sheer desperation. Rain splashes across his forehead and runs down the back of his neck as he forces his way through. There's another explosion, but this one overhead even louder and followed by a flash of lightning that lights up the forest floor and the abundance of bones and glistening innards that litter its dampness. He carries on, though, blindly forcing his way through to God knows where and hoping for an exit from whatever the hell this is. I want to go home! Lightning disappears into the canopy not so far ahead, and the subsequent thunder is surrounding and deafening. He pushes on, legs heavy and fighting against the ever-suffering ground. Thoughts turn to Jody. Only now is it crossing his mind that she might be having a similar experience, holed up in some twisted and induced nightmare, alone and terrified. He stumbles through into another clearing, but this one with a line of crosses stretching for as far as he can see, each one with a body nailed to it, skin slashed and innards pulled out. The wind gifts him the stench all at once, forcing him to dry wretch towards the ground, nothing left in his gut. With a garbled scream, he's on the run again, not caring where he's heading, just as long as he puts distance between himself and death. He runs as fast as his tired legs will allow, praying he's heading in the right direction, praying that Jody won't be suffering a similar ordeal. Through the foliage ahead, he sees a flash of drainpipe and his trusty cycle leaning against the side of their house. Oh, God! Yes! Yes! Oh, God! Yes! She's confused, but most of all terrified of what lies behind the fog. Running her hand across the door, her right palm finally finds the frame. The smog is making it almost impossible to see, but she knows it's close, the rattling breathing growing louder with each creak of the wood. It isn't her! It isn't Mum! Blindly and urgently, she feels her way across, a ripple of relief washing over her as her fingers finally clasp around the handle. Something foul diluting the air now, sweetness and perfume replaced with rotting meat. She yanks down hard on the handle and begins to cry. Locked. 
The croaky voice rattles from behind. something darker moving behind the grey. She pulls at the handle again, yanking the door on its hinges, but it won't budge. Icy coldness clasps around her left shoulder and she screams. The stench is putrid, making her insides turn. The floorboards creak again, and now she can feel its breath warm against the back of her neck, each hair bristling its warning. Through the door's window, she eyes him running up the driveway. Iciness falls across her right shoulder and sharp nails and bony fingers press into her skin. Her husband looks lost like a child. She wonders what has happened to him, all torn up and bloody as she feels herself being pulled back into the fog. Their eyes fix on each other. Sorry. We had enough candles. Jody! Seth screams as he watches his wife disappearing into the fog. He throws himself against the door, but it hardly moves again and again. And she's gone. Drawing blood from his lips as he thunders his fists against the door, he looks across to the window and makes a move, but only manages two strides before the vines wrap around his legs and pull them from beneath him. He hits the ground hard, the wind knocked out of him. His muscles already screaming, he forces himself to grab onto the synchronized serpents to try and wrestle them away. But this is their territory, home, soil, and they only coil even tighter. The warm breeze has turned cold, and the soft rain feels hard. His body slides easily across the ground as the forest begins to drag him into its depths, away from the house, away from Jody. Futilely, he digs his fingers into the softness of the earth, turning his attention towards the rustling to his lap. Emerging from the wall of green, with gun dancing in the air and uniforms stained with darkness, the soldier glances at Seth but continues running, eyes wide with panic. but the soldier pays no attention and continues running towards the house. Only this one isn't weatherboard. This one is brick. He watches the soldier lean his gun against the side and crouch down towards the plant pot, sucking in strained breaths. There's just enough time for him to see the soldier turning the handle before the man with sharp fingernails and fireflies for eyes steps out of the green, greeting Seth with a crooked smile.
Trisha hears the rattle of the key, and her heart skips. She lets herself hope, but... Footsteps. Nervously, she taps her fingers against her thigh and swallows loudly before rushing over to the mirror to fix her lipstick. All this time. But she won't believe it until she sees his face. She had no plans on falling in love with an American. She cried for days when he got drafted. She'd seen all the movies, had boyfriends before, but until that moment, never believed in love at first sight. The kind that hurts, twists at your stomach with a yearning. The kind that puts you off food and imprisons you in your room with only books and music to see you through. Until you can see them again. Hairs on her neck bristle as the stairs begin to creak. Only the same pure love could bring him back from the dead. That's what the man with the long fingernails had said. She dismissed it as snake oil at first, laughing and giggling along. But when he grabbed her hand, she saw things in his eyes. Otherworldly things that no human should be privy to. It has to burn, he had said, like love. And that's when she knew that the stranger could bring him back. At what cost? How many souls had she needlessly cast to him over the years? And down to her last couple of drops, she had almost given up hope. Was it worth it? Blood on her hands? Decades of loneliness, drifting through endless days without companionship, without love? She turns to find George standing in the doorway, beaten, bloody, but hurts. Yes, it was worth it. She lifts her veil, ready to kiss her husband for the first time in over 50 years. final tale. We join a couple in their twilight years. At that age, it's the little joys that matter. The banter, an afternoon soak in the tub, Emmeline's homemade preserves. Ah, but in this tale, shared with us by author P.D. Williams, when one of the lovers starts looking ill, we can't help but suspect it's no ordinary sickness. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Graham Rowett, and Lindsay Rousseau. So let's usher in the end, my only friend. Let's feast on bread and butter and jelly. Bertram couldn't be sure how long Emmeline had been dead. 
She'd been in the bathroom, taking one of her late afternoon soaks. He hadn't heard a peep out of her since she'd turned off the faucets over an hour ago. He didn't think much about it. After all, they were both in their early 70s, and as you got older, things naturally took longer. Bertram was kicked back in his time-worn recliner watching baseball. It was now well into the fourth inning when the thought hit him to check on her. Lord, what if she's fallen and knocked herself unconscious? He had sat through enough of those medical alert commercials to know that it was relatively easy to end up on the kitchen floor, or, and this was when the disturbing mental picture took hold of him, a bathtub full of water. He got up, walked to the bathroom, and banged on the door. You okay in there? She didn't answer. So he opened the unlocked door and stepped inside. Emmeline was sitting in the tub, her head tilted to the side. She appeared to be napping. Emmeline? Emmeline? Honey? He inched closer to the tub. The knot in his stomach grew tighter as he reached down and pushed her shoulder. She slumped down to the waterline. He jumped back as if the tub had sent an electric shock through him. Bertram's quaking hand felt her neck for a pulse, but found none. He stared at her chest for any movement. It was still. Oh, Lordy Lord! Emmeline! Oh, Jesus, no! He backed out of the bathroom until he bumped into the wall in the hallway. He turned and staggered to the living room and dropped down onto the recliner. Bertram was shaky and confused. Once he collected and arranged his thoughts, he realized that the first thing he needed to do was contact the authorities. He shut off the TV, turned, lifted the receiver of the landline phone on the small table next to him, and began dialing 911. Then the voice called from the bathroom. He froze, his finger still hovering over the one button on the phone's receiver. He reminded himself there were no such thing as ghosts. He dialed the one. Then he heard the waters stirring, followed by the faint sound of feet sliding over the tile floor toward the bathroom door. In his mind's eye, Bertram watched the doorknob slowly turning heard the telltale creak of the door hinges. The wet footsteps squished as they dragged down the hall and toward the living room. Bertram laid the receiver on the table and stared straight ahead at the darkened TV screen. He could see his own reflection in the living room around him. His peripheral vision detected the form stepping out of the hall. He stayed focused on the TV mirror He might lose what little sanity he had left if he looked directly at her. He panted as the body wrapped in a white bathrobe sauntered past him and sat down in the chair next to him. Bertram, I I feel funny. I hope I didn't have a stroke or something. Emmeline looked over to him. Bertram, what's wrong with you? You look at me when I'm talking to you. 
Bertram worked up enough courage to swivel his head toward her like a wobbly animatronic. When he saw that his wife was very much alive and not some revenant haunting him, his body relaxed and his heart rate returned to near normal. Baby? God of Moses, darling, I thought you'd gone and died in the bathtub. Died in the bathtub? (laughs) What's gotten into you, you old fool? (laughs) She smiled and snickered at him. You was in the tub for a while, so I went to check on you. You weren't breathing or moving or nothing. When I touched you, you slumped over like a loose fence post. Uh, Are you sure you're all right? Yes, Bertram. I think I might remember dying. Probably just fainted. Them new blood pressure pills Doc Melbourne has me on has been giving me the woozies. I'll call him tomorrow and get that straightened out. She shot a quick glance at the antique clock on the mantel. Oh, gracious. Would you look at the time? Have you eaten anything? Well, of course, Emmeline. The first thing I thought of when I figured you was dead was to go in the kitchen and stuff my pie hole. She gave him one of the loving smiles he always found endearing. Oh, Bertram, you must be starved. I'll whip you up some fried cube steak and mashed potatoes. Ain't you hungry, too? You know how much dying can wear a body out. <laughs> ain't you a right. You know, for some reason, I ain't hungry. Well, how about you get on to bed and rest yourself, then, I've got more of a hankering for a peanut butter and nanner sandwich. All right, then. I'm feeling pretty run down. I'll see you in the morning. I sure hope so. Emmeline got up from her chair, stood over him, and kissed him on the top of his balding head before heading off to bed. Sweet Jesus, how her lips are cold. A good half hour before even God himself was set to awaken, the rooster crowed. Bertram sat up in bed, rubbed his eyes, and swung his legs over the side. He drew in the familiar fragrance wafting in from the kitchen. Bertram loved the smell of freshly brewed coffee and bacon in the morning. He threw on some fresh overalls and made a beeline to his breakfast. He leaned over the stove in the kitchen and sniffed the frying pans that created what he liked to think of as the morning miracle. He poured himself a mug of hot black coffee and sat down at the small table by the kitchen window, where he was greeted by the glorious sight of one of Emmeline's life-altering breakfasts. He was about to place the napkin on his lap when it dawned on him that Emmeline wasn't buzzing around the way she typically did. His stomach lurched at the thought that she may have passed out again. Hey, honey, where are you at? I'm down here. Emmeline hollered from the root cellar, where she stored her delicious homemade jellies. Soon, the cellar's two heavy doors slammed shut. Bertram heard her grunting as she climbed up the three steps of the side porch. Darling, are you okay? You need some help? No, I'm I'm good. Just needed to grab a fresh jar of jelly. Bertram started loading up his plate with scrambled eggs. He heard the squeal of the long spring on the screen door stretching. Come on, old woman, or I'll start the blessing without you. 
Immaline scooted past him as he saturated his eggs with Tabasco sauce. He was stretching for the bacon just as she was sitting down. She reached across the table and placed the jelly at the center next to the biscuit's covered bowl. The jar was her strawberry blend. Bertram read the personalized note on the label affixed to the front. Strappin' strawberry, main ingredient, love. He smiled as if he were reading the sentiment for the first time. <sighs> I don't know what's up with me this morning. My joints feel so stiff. Oh, now, Emmeline, you know neither of us is exactly a spring chick. Bertram looked at her. She had dark circles under her slightly milky eyes. Purple veins crisscrossed her upper torso. Bertram, what is it? Are you all right? You look like you've seen a ghost. Bertram swallowed hard. Emmeline, baby, have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> no. Just threw on my dress and got about my business. I didn't have the energy to go comb my hair or brush my teeth. Besides, who's there to try and impress way out here anyways? Speaking of teeth, my jaw feels tight and it's, it's making it hard to talk. Do you think I might have gotten a tick bite? Those things can cause all kinds of bad symptoms. Bertram didn't feel like eating anymore. I think we ought to get you in the truck and go to the ER over in Campbell. That's nearly an hour from here. Just let me see if I can stomach some food, then I'll go take some aspirin and lie down. I'll be all right. Here, let me see if you got a fever first. Bertram felt her forehead. He snatched his hand back. Bertram, what is it? Do I have a temperature or not? Sweetie, you don't have no temperature at all. You're colder than an Eskimo's nose. Are you sure you don't want me to rush you to the hospital in Campbell? There's no telling what you might have caught. No. I'm too tired to even walk out to the truck. Just help me get back to bed. I don't think I can hold anything down after all. We'll see how I feel later. All right. If you're sure. Bertram took her arm. He nearly yelped. It felt as if her arm had turned into an unyielding rubber. When he finally got her to the bathroom, he began unbuttoning the back of her dress. He noticed it was damp and her skin had a slight sheen to it. After he lowered her onto the bed, he covered her up and kissed her frigid forehead before heading to the living room to give all of this a good think. Throughout the morning and early afternoon, Bertram checked on her four times. Each time she was sleeping, worn out by questions and concerns, he nodded off in the recliner. A while later, he awoke with a start and saw the early evening's faint shadows beginning to take shape on the living room's walls. He had drifted off earlier in the afternoon, which meant Emmeline hadn't been checked on for hours. Bertram gave a slight grunt as he hauled himself up and out of his chair. He was just beginning to get acclimated to alertness when he heard a gurgling voice cry out from the back bedroom. Her voice sounded like it was underwater. 
Bertram was running down the hall when the odd smell hit him. It was like rotten fruit and spoiled meat. He charged through the bedroom door, flipped on the light switch, and blocked his howl with his palm. Bertram, do I look odd to you? I feel different from this morning. What do you think's going on? Bertram had no response for the waxy corpse sitting on the edge of the bed. Then his attention shifted to the stomach-churning stench emanating from the thick pus oozing from the popping blisters covering her reddish body. I, I feel sick. Will you help me get to the bathroom? Bertram stood there, gawking at her. He didn't know if he should run screaming from the house or call an ambulance. Bertram, help me. He walked to the bed. Emmeline held up a waterlogged arm and Bertram grimaced as he took hold of it. He began lifting her up to a standing position and felt the top layer of her skin slip a little. His repulsion made him pause. Bertram, get get me to the toilet. It was enough to snap him back. After helping Emmeline up, he stepped back a bit but held his arms out to catch her if she fell though he dreaded having to touch her again. Once he directed her into the bathroom, she shuffled toward the toilet. She bent forward slightly and vomited up copious amounts of blackish blood and small, chunky pieces. Bertram felt his own gorge rising. I'm so sorry. He dashed from the bathroom and out to the side porch where he did some puking of his own. As he was finishing, it gradually dawned on him that he had left his ailing wife alone in the bathroom, dealing with her own fear and discomfort. Wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, he composed himself as best he could and ventured back inside. The only thing worse than Emmeline's hideous appearance was the horrendous smell of decaying flesh that now permeated the back of the house. He grabbed a handkerchief from a pocket in his overalls and covered his nose and mouth. Emmeline, where are you, sugar? She was hunched over the porcelain sink, her darkened hands gripping the sides. Bertram approached the sink. He couldn't see Emmeline's face. Her oily hair had fallen forward over her brow. Bloody teeth clogged the drain. I think we might be looking at more than some tick bite or fainting spell. The conclusion he was coming to unleashed a bevy of goosebumps all over his body. She wasn't merely ill. She was a withering corpse. Bertram had seen enough dead farm animals. Emmeline was just as gone as they had been. He had no idea what to do, think, or say. Then the small crumb of rationality told him that the first thing he needed to do was become more practical. Crying and confusion would not help. He could no longer think of Emmeline as his beloved high school sweetheart and wife of over 50 years. 
she was now a body he had to deal with. His first course of action was to get her out of the house. Emmeline, sweetness, let's get you on the porch. I think we could both use some fresh air. She remained still at first and then made four small turns to her left until she was facing the bathroom doorway. Do you want me to help you? Bertram was relieved when she didn't answer. Once she made it to the porch, Emmeline managed to bend her knees enough to lower herself down onto one of the rocking chairs. Bertram attempted to conceal the look of disgust on his face about her joints loud cracking as she sat down. Foamy blood leaked from her mouth and nose. They say that there's dignity in death, but there ain't nothing dignified about my wife right now. He felt the need to cover her wretched body with something. Sugar, would you like a blanket? Emmeline nodded ever so slightly, her neck making the cringe-worthy cracking sound again. Bertram pulled in a deep breath, holding on to it for as long as possible. He jogged to the bathroom closet for the blanket. Once he was back outside, he tenderly wrapped the blanket around her and sat in the other rocking chair. Neither said a word. They stared out across the yard at the fading springtime sun as it slid softly and colorfully behind the tree line. Bertram rocked back and forth. He tried desperately to direct his mind toward any other place but the porch he was sharing with a dead woman. Bertram let his gaze wash over the front property, corralled by a long stretch of wire fencing. He was wrapped as he took notice of the straight rows of neatly planted corn. They reminded him of a battalion of soldiers standing at attention. God, how I love the country life. It truly does agree with me. But the merciful distraction dissipated as his thoughts circled back to Emmeline. He recalled fondly the acreage portion that she had claimed. The magical place that ran along the north side of the house that gave the fruit bushes their first breath of glorious life. She used the berries she grew to create her wondrous and delectable delights. His lips trembled as he remembered the unique labels she made for each jar. She'd give each flavor a catchy name, like Big Bad Blueberry, Betcha Like'em Blackberry, or Really Red Raspberry. And just as she had done on the label for the strawberry jelly she'd served at breakfast, she always finished out the stickers with the affectionate phrase, Main Ingredient love. As the hours wore on, Emmeline's wet breathing slowed. Her once bold eyes grew dull and distant. Despite his effort to stay awake with her, Bertram eventually fell into a deep and uneasy sleep. He was so drained that he slept past the rooster for one of the very few times in his adult life. He was awakened by a loud buzzing. Emmeline was still gazing well past nowhere. 
Her eyes had receded deep into their sockets. The buzzing that Bertram heard were the numerous flying insects rushing in and out of her open mouth, invading her nose and ears. Her greenish body had bloated. It looked as though her stomach was set to burst. Due to the grotesque swelling, her blanket had slipped off. For Emmeline's sake, Bertram tried to remain stoic. It would be cruel to let her witness her husband's revulsion. His disordered mind made it difficult for him to decide on what he should do for his wife at this awful moment. He did know that he would never leave her with the relentless flies and their maggots. More important, he would never allow anyone else to see her in her current ghastly state. The authorities be damned. I'm Thainberg. What can I do, darling? Tell me what I can do for you. She struggled mightily to make herself understood. Put me back in the tub. Please, let me try and wash this mess off me. It was hard for Bertram to watch the filthy insects pushed out of her mouth as she spoke. It seemed evil and profane, and it brought about a wave of anger. I'll go and get the bath ready. I'll be back in a jiffy. When he returned to the porch, he had his handkerchief tied around the lower half of his face. Then he placed one arm under Emmeline's knees, now stiff with rigor mortis, and the other across her shifting shoulder blades, and carried her to the bathroom. The muscles in his lower back strained as he placed her down into the water's warm comfort. He stood up straight to loosen his back muscles and noticed that his arms were sticky and stained. Do you want me to help wash you off? No, just just leave me. Bertram shuddered as he realized that this was likely the last time he would ever hear his wife's voice. Call if you need anything. He went back out to the front porch to clear his head and allow the tears to purge his heart. He waited there for a very long time, but Emmeline still hadn't called for him. When he couldn't take the silence and worrying any longer, he recovered his mouth and nose with his handkerchief and returned to the bathroom. Emmeline was slumped over just as she had been the first time he found her. Her skin was turning black, and there was a slimy film on the surface of the water. Worse yet, her body was beginning to liquefy. The odor that ripped through his mask was the worst by far. Bertram opened a window and then bolted back outside to wretch. Help me! What in the world am I gonna do? But heaven was silent. Should he now call the authorities? And if he did, what would he tell them? What might they make of his wife's decomposed body? Would they think him a ghoul and lock him away? 
There was going to be an investigation and many questions he couldn't possibly answer. Bertram needed to think. He walked around to the side of the house and stood near Emmeline's garden, where her prized crop flourished. He paced anxiously, frazzled and useless, hoping for an idea. Then, he abruptly stopped. As Bertram gazed upon the columns of ripened berries, an inexplicable feeling of calmness enveloped him. The garden's peacefulness brought clarity, allowing him to ponder a few simple ideas rather than trudge through a complicated maze of elaborate plans. The decision he made felt not so much correct as it did proper. For Bertram, this was now a sacred place of remembrance, a place where a woman's love nurtured the rich brown earth that had yielded so much sweetness and beauty. Now, he knew what in the world he was going to do. He let her sit in the tub for over a week so nature could finish the job it had screwed up before. Then, he dug a hole out by her garden and began pouring her remains into it. When he got down to the last of it, Bertram picked up the small jar he had brought with him and filled it. He screwed on the two-piece metal lid, took a pin from one of his overalls chest pockets, and scribbled some words on the blank label. Bertram carried the jar to its final resting place. There, it would serve as a small monument to a love that would continue far beyond its 50-plus years of earthly existence. He said a few words of prayer, then solemnly ascended the stairs of the root cellar. He lowered its doors as if they were the lid of a coffin. There, in the darkness, on a row of tall racks, sat a jar of dark jelly. Written on the white label were the words, Amazing Emmeline, main ingredient, love. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us 
Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.